clap before the sermon because you'll not be clapping after it. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, I'm going to read from verse 25. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these uh, three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. interesting I think that this is probably one of the best known parables in the Gospels and yet only appears in one of them. Um, the absence of love I think to a lesser or greater degree is almost universally accepted uh, when you look at broken homes, uh, broken lives, broken hearts, broken communities and broken churches. I think that one of the common uh, denom denominators in each of those scenarios is an absence uh, often of love. Uh, there was certainly some truth in the lyrics of the song sung by the Beatles, All You Need Is Love. Um, as we look across the world, uh, the tensions that exist between so many people groups um, that share the same territory um, 
when we think of places like Ukraine and the horrendous conflict and harm that has been inflicted on the lives of so many people, uh, not only lives taken, not only people injured, but so many people now displaced um, across Europe and probably further afield. You think of other places like Somalia, uh, you think of places like Zimbabwe, you know, places like Bosnia and Rwanda, um, and certainly I think when you think about the conflict and the genocide and just the horrendous hurt and pain that has been experienced in places like that, I think all of us would acknowledge that a little bit more love would make things go around a little bit more smoothly. Most of the problems that we uh, encounter, uh, I think, would dissipate if people loved people. Um, love is the miracle working moral lubricant, which is, in, which is missing in many of the world's bearings. And most of us give assent to the belief that loving our neighbour is important, but for some reason, love for our neighbour is not all that plentiful. Uh, there's a gap between what we say, uh, what we believe, and what we actually do. And what's true today is was certainly true in the time of Jesus. The religious leaders knew from their study of the Old Testament that love for one's neighbour was important, but there was a gap between what they uh, said they believed and how they actually behaved. Now, there's a little bit more to that, um, which hopefully some of it will come out a little bit later on. This story that uh, Jesus told springs out of a conversation um, that he had with a man who came to pose that very question. Well, um, well, who came to pose the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him, and uh, in answering him told this story. Um, and part of his answer included this story. And I, I want to look at this uh, passage that I read to you. There's many ways in which you could actually look at the story. You could look at the many questions that are posed. And I think there's something like six questions posed throughout the story. The whole thing could hinge on the questions. Um, my preferred option after uh, wrestling with this passage um, over the last few days is, is to think about it under three headings. Um, I want us to think about the question that was posed by the man. Then I want us to think about the answer that was given by Jesus. Uh, and the, the way that Jesus handled this man, his, his neighbour in a sense. And then thirdly, I want us to think about the story that uh, Jesus told. So question, answer, story, dead simple, simple speaker, hopefully that's helpful. So uh, the question then, I, I want you to think about this question, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? But before we look at the question, I think we need to stop, just back up a little bit and look at the attitude of the questioner. Because it says in, in Luke 10, 25, that a certain lawyer, so an expert in the law, the Old Testament law, <clears throat> he's not sitting in the sheriff court <clears throat> or the high court in Edinburgh or Glasgow, he is an expert in the Old Testament law and he comes to Jesus and we're told in Luke 10, 25, that he came to put Jesus to the test. 
So um, he's probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He's certainly a scribe. Um, he's an important member of society, um, although we're not told uh, those details specifically. Uh, we're just told that he was an expert in the law. He had probably memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament, certainly the first uh, five books of the Old Testament. Um, he was familiar with its contents. He probably could have quoted it uh, if he had been requested to do so, not only quoting it, but explaining it as he went. He had pondered probably every type of legal case imaginable um, and had probably created thousands of legal scenarios in his mind and wrestled with how the law, uh, what the law had to say about those particular situations. So to be able to give an authoritative answer on any given subject uh, related to the law was really the occupation of his life. So as he approaches Jesus and as people look at him, they would have recognized him immediately as a fairly knowledgeable individual. Uh, and he certainly thinks of himself as uh, a knowledgeable uh, individual. He has decided that he will put this Galilean carpenter turned teacher turned rabbi to the test. He knows that Jesus has never been to any kind of rabbinical school and it seems that he wants to really test him in public. Now I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where um, the floor is open uh, to ask you questions. Um, in my world, uh, teaching students and, and, and so on, that often happens, the floor is open and students uh, have the opportunity to ask you uh, questions. And for the most part, the questions that students ask are usually helpful as we work things through uh, together. But I have been in settings where individuals will ask you um, a question and they're not really interested in the answer. Uh, that you give at least because really what they want to do is just score points against you in public they want to see you nailed to the front wall of the lecture hall whilst everybody is watching and these particular students will will, will are usually uh, very nice folks and they will go on to make great ministers and pastors no doubt um, that's what's happening with this man. He's not really interested in what Jesus has to say. He wants instead to put Jesus to the test. He wants to score points. He probably wants to belittle Jesus. He wants to embarrass him if he can. Um, and uh, of course, there's nothing unusual about this. The theologians of the day were constantly trying to catch Jesus out. They came with all kinds of questions. Um, as they uh, tried to humiliate Jesus. So the Sadducees, for example, in Mark 12, came to Jesus with a question about the resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they had this whole uh, nutcracker of a question. Uh, this guy has had seven wives and when he dies, and they all die and go to heaven. When he gets to heaven, uh, who's, which of these women will be his wife? And, and, and uh, of course, Jesus told them, well, two things you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of god um, those two things are missing in this equation that you've in this picture that you've painted and here on this occasion um, as i said this man almost 
uh, certainly wants Jesus to say something that he feels can be taken down in evidence against him. Um, and it would appear that the teacher of the law is hostile and he's critical of uh, Jesus. And we're all familiar with people like that. You can't really talk to them. A conversation with them is really like a debate. They're not really interested in what you have to say. But here's the sad thing, in my estimation. Some Christians are a bit like that. <laughs> they know it all. Uh, and they want you to know that they know it all. There's no openness of heart. There's no discussing things and working things through together. They don't really care what anyone else thinks. They spend most of their lives scoring points, sometimes and for the most part, theological points. And they will go down in history as knowledgeable, maybe, but cantankerous rascals that never had anything positive to contribute. They're negative and critical at every turn. There's nothing winsome about them. They are lousy neighbors at home and at work. They're a nightmare to live with and they're a nightmare to work beside because they know everything. And every time they open their mouth, they just want to score points. Who wants a neighbor like that? In my opinion, these people are a poor reflection of the Jesus who sat down with people and listened to them and talked to them and steered them in a better direction. They are a poor reflection of the meek and lowly Jesus. Here's the second thing I want you to think about um, uh, the question, not only the attitude, but I want you to think a little bit about the content of the question. Teacher, what must I do, he says, to inherit eternal life? Now, on the surface of things, he, it, it seems as if he wants to know how he can be sure that he's going to heaven. Um, he knows that not everyone will go to heaven, he knows that the Bible does speak about two destinations uh, in eternity and he wants to make sure that he's going to the right destination. He wants to make sure that he's going to heaven. And at the face of it, on the face of it, it's a very spiritual, deeply spiritual question. But given the introductory description of the questioner, which indicated that he had come to test Jesus, I think when you think about the introductory description of the questioner, I think that it's fair to conclude that he doesn't really want to know the answer because he, he feels in his heart he already knows the answer. He wants to find out if Jesus knows the answer. Uh, this man wants to engage in an intellectual sparring match. And it's alarming how we can become so comfortable throwing such important questions like where will I spend eternity around just to score points? It's interesting to read uh, a little while ago about Richard Dawkins and uh, his colleagues who have described themselves as the four horsemen. Now, that phrase, of course, is plucked directly from the book of Revelation, and I'm all for reasonable discussion. I don't think for a minute that Christians check their brains out at the door when they come into church. I'm, I'm all for people asking questions, 
But just the very use of the name the four horsemen, that's not about reasonable discussion. That's about having a go, surely. Rather than it being about rational, rationally talking a subject through in a seriously minded way. And it seems to me that this is where this man is in Luke chapter 10. He wants to have a go. And in the process, he's using one of the most soul-searching questions that could be asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder how someone's conscience can allow them to become so flippant and so carefree. I guess it's possible, isn't it, to sear your conscience that you can talk loosely and easily about such important issues like will I spend eternity in heaven or in hell? First Timothy 4 verse 2 talks, Paul talks about people who spoke lies in, in hypocrisy, having seared their conscience with a hot iron. They used to live in Canada and uh, they would, uh, ranchers would stamp their cattle with a hot iron and uh, this, of course this, the, the hair would never grow there and you'd always see their mark, the mark of their ranch on, 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 on the cattle and, and the skin became desensitized in that area and they couldn't feel anything in that area and some people's consciences are a bit like that. Um, they play fast and loose with spiritual things and they no longer sense the seriousness of this issue. Many examples of that I think in uh, the New Testament. I think Herod's a great example of that. He listened to the preaching of John the Baptist. He was troubled by the preaching of John the Baptist. And, and yet at the request of his dancing stepdaughter, he had John the Baptist beheaded. And you wonder how in the world could you do that, John, having been troubled by John, or, or Herod, having been troubled by John's preaching. And then later, of course, Jesus is sent to him uh, when he's in under trial, sent to Herod, and Herod just wants to be entertained with miracles, and, and Jesus has nothing more to say to him, because he's already silenced the voice of God in his life, cut off the voice of God in his life, and Jesus has nothing to say to him. So, the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I guess as we think about this guy asking this question, it just reminds us that all that glitters is not gold. Um, this guy is asking this question, it seems like a deeply spiritual question, but he's only interested in testing Jesus, nailing Jesus to the wall publicly to humiliate him, I think. I hope none of us become so familiar with the question, where will I spend eternity? I've known people to reach a point where it's in their lives where all of this just becomes a game. Familiarity breeds contempt. And so what, says somebody? Um, what has this guy asking this question to have a go at Jesus got to do with me? Well, I would suggest to you that there was once a time in his life when he wouldn't have been having a go. I would suggest to you that there may have been a time in his life when this was a very serious question that he really wanted the answer to, maybe. But he's become so familiar that now he's uh, fast and loose with such important issues. And I just appeal to all of us not to become careless, but to sear our conscience, flippant about holy things. 
Well, that's the, the question. What about the answer? Um, we, we will try and tease a bit more out of the question as we look at how Jesus handled it. So the answer, uh, Jesus and his approach. There are a number of ways, I think, to respond to a person who asks you a question like this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Especially if you know that they're just having a go. Luther, for example, on one occasion was asked, what was God doing before he made the world? Now, Luther's response was making hell for people who ask stupid questions. Uh, Luther was a law unto himself, of course, um, and uh, certainly in the latter part of his life, his uh, language was just outrageous at times. Anyway, Luther for another day. Another way, of course, of dealing with somebody who asks you a question like this is to blow your top, shout the odds, walk away, giving utterance to spiteful words in, in, in retaliation. Or you could listen and answer the question if you can. And in answering, seize the opportunity to turn the gaze of the questioner to his own heart and the state of his own heart. And Jesus was a genius at doing this, an absolute genius at taking uh, hot chestnut questions and uh, answering them in a way that turned the gaze of the questioner into their own heart. Like think about that occasion where there was a crowd of northerners, anti-Roman zealots in Jerusalem and they came, some people, religious came and asked Jesus, so Jesus, should we pay our taxes or shouldn't we? And they really thought that they had Jesus over a barrel because the northern, the northern, the zealots from the north, he, they knew that those zealots would have detested any suggestion that taxes should be paid to the Romans. But then if Jesus said, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes to the Romans, they could have had him arrested. So they had him over a barrel, but Jesus says, give me a coin. Whose image is on that coin? Caesar's. Well then, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. If it's Caesar's image, give him what belongs to him. But give to God what belongs to God. In whose image were you made? Whose image do you bear on your hearts? God's. So give your whole selves to God. Jesus was an expert at taking questions and answering them in a way that turned the focus of the questioner in on, on their own hearts. And here in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 10, Jesus did exactly that. He allowed this man to ask the question, and in response he asked him, what does the law say? So, in a sense, he, he allows the Bible to speak for itself. This, what do the scriptures say? Um, I was interested reading a while ago, Spurgeon said that you know, the Bible doesn't need defended. Goodness, the Bible's like a lion, it needs to be unchained and let loose. The Bible doesn't need defended. Neither does the gospel, incidentally. The gospel needs to be unleashed and let go. It's the power of God to salvation. So Jesus says, uh, what's written in the, in, 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 in the law? Um, this rich, uh, of course, Jesus did that all the time. I, I could go off into all kinds of rabbit warrens here and I need to try and stay on track. But Jesus did that all the time, just turn people back to the scriptures again and again. 
Um, remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus uh, and said uh, exactly the same thing? Um, and Jesus said to him, so he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. And he said, I've kept all these since I was a youth. And then Jesus says, okay, fine, go and sell everything that you have and, and give it to the poor. Because money was his God. He, he thought he had kept the commandments. But there were, there were things in God's place on the throne of his heart. And Jesus was just brilliant at answering people and, and directing their focus where it should be focused on their own hearts and on what the word of God said. And uh, so here in Luke chapter 10, he asks this man to look into the mirror of God's word to see how short he falls. He wants him to see his own selfishness. The law is God's standard, and he wants this man to ask the question, how do I measure up? In many senses, that's what Jesus wants all of us to do. He wants us to wrestle with the question, am I good enough to get into heaven? How do I square with God's standards? The law is God's schoolmaster, and it shows us how far short we fall and therefore it shows us our need of Christ and our need of grace and forgiveness but if we don't feel the discomfort of looking at our shortcomings by comparing ourselves to the law of God the standard of God if we never feel the discomfort of that if we never look into the mirror of God's word and we don't see the dirt and filth in our hearts and we'll never feel a need of a solution. We'll never see our need of a savior. It's only when we see our sinfulness and brokenness that we'll realize that we need help. And that's why Jesus turns his uh, focus to the law. As I think about the way Jesus handled this skeptic, skeptic um, I, I am reminded, reminded that we need to learn how to engage our neighbors. You know, the greatest thing that you could do for your neighbor, the greatest gift that you could give your neighbor is to introduce them to the Savior. And it's no, it's no mistake or coincidence that you live where you live and that you live next door to the people that you live next door to. That's not a coincidence. That's a divine providence. God wants them to hear the gospel from you. That's why you live next door to God has placed you there. And the greatest gift that you can give them is the knowledge of Jesus. So we need to learn how to talk to people. We need to learn how to disarm them. We need to learn uh, to win not just an argument. Goodness, we can win arguments, but lose souls. We need to really listen to people and wrestle with their deep, deep questions. You know, I just finished reading um, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. What an amazing book that was, um, for me anyway. A minister in Edinburgh uh, in the context that I find myself in now, um, mosque just over the, over the road. Just a, a fascinating uh, book. But the thing that struck me is that Nabil's Nabil had a high school friend called David, I think David Wood was his name, David, and they met, and David just listened to his questions, Nabil's questions, and turned them back to the scriptures, again and again, 
The Bible's been corrupted and changed. Show me where. Um, you know, Jesus uh, can't be the Son of God. The Bible says that he is the Son of God. And again and again and again, just turns him back to the Scriptures. Till he gets to a point, when Nabil gets to a point where he just cannot, he cannot refuse Christ. And the secret is because he has a friend who has just listened to him, cared deeply about him, was interested in more than scoring points and winning arguments, wanted to win his soul by God's grace. Anyway, uh, so much then for um, Jesus and his approach. A little bit about the man then and his assessment. The man, of course, is only too willing to show off his theological knowledge. He had studied the law. He knew how to summarize it perfectly. And in answering, he quotes two verses. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength and all your mind. And Leviticus 19, verse 18. And love your neighbor as yourself. That is a summary of the entire law. That is how you inherit eternal life, um, Jesus uh, said to him, or, or he said to Jesus, by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So the first four commandments relate to our love for God. We are to have no other gods before Yahweh. And uh, we are not to um, uh, make any graven images of, of him or take his name in vain or em in an in, in empty, light, frivolous way. We are to remember uh, the Sabbath day, keep it holy. So that all of that relates to, um, uh, to, to, to the worship, to loving God. But then the second half of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as it's sometimes referred to, all relate to how you love your neighbour. So you honour your mum and dad. That's what it means to love your neighbour. You don't um, commit adultery, so you don't run off with your neighbour's wife. And on and you don't steal from you, don't deceive your neighbour by telling them lies. On and on it goes. But all of that can be summed up, and, and all of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, the entire law can be summed up in in those two statements, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. Because if we did that, we would reflect the goodness of God within us. And if we did that perfectly, we would live. Um, now, Jesus is not endorsing, I think, a, th a theory of salvation by works. He is, merely, he is merely saying, if we kept the law perfectly, if we kept the law perfectly, we would enjoy eternal life because we wouldn't need a saviour. But we don't keep the law perfectly because we can't keep the law perfectly. We are unable to, to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our strength, with all of our... We're unable to love our neighbour as ourselves. Because we are sinful by nature. We don't reflect the perfect, of good, the, the perfect goodness of God because we are broken human beings because of the fall. And that's why God had to send Jesus into, this, into the world. But this man cannot see that he is a sinner. He thinks that he has kept the law perfectly. Now some of us might have wanted to go off on a tangent and say to him, um, 
You know, you asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? An inheritance is something that is given to you. It's not something that you work for. And we would have gone down maybe that rabbit warren in answering and engaging um, this man. Uh, he asked the question, what must I do? The question, it's a silly question. You can't do anything um, because you're broken and sinful and you can never do enough. That's the question. And so after quoting these two uh, verses, love God and love your neighbor, he should have said, but I can't do it. That's my problem. So what hope is, is there for me? But he's smug and he's self-righteous and he needs to be punctured. He needs to see that he's not nearly as perfect as he thinks he is. He needs to get to a place like the little Pharisee, like the little publican in the story of the Pharisee and the publican, when he cries, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's where he needs to get to. So, uh, love God, Jesus says you've answered well. Um, and then there's a story, uh, the story that Jesus tells. The man began to think about what he had just said. And then he starts to wrestle with the question, well, okay, love God, love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I mean, I can love my colleagues, Jewish experts, and I could love fellow Jews, although there are traditions that we shouldn't love sinners, but I could love my fellow Jews, but that would be the extent of it. Surely that's my neighbor. You're expecting me to love Gentile dogs, are you, Jesus? That's the question. Who is my neighbor? So Jesus, in response, tells them this story. A man was traveling 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, very dangerous journey to undertake. Um, at one point, the traveler descends to um, around uh, 3,300 feet. Um, it, it, it's an eerie sort of valley to walk through, um, a dangerous place, all kinds of caves, thieves, robbers, hanging out on that uh, journey. And this man makes his way uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, only he is set upon by a band of thugs. They strip him so he's got no clothes on, he's just lying naked, they beat him. Every cent that he has, anything of any value, they take it from him. They beat him and they leave him a bloody mess lying by the side of the road. Now, uh, Jesus then says, uh, he's lying there after this horrific ordeal. He's just lying by the side of the road. And he says, uh, he talks about three people. He introduces three more people in the story. Two men that passed by and one man that stopped. So let's think about the two men that passed by, a priest. Um, it seemed as if the man at last might get some help. Because it just happened, I, as the King James says, King James Version says, by chance a priest was walking down the road. So I don't know how that fits with your theology, by chance. Of course, um, the foreordained will of God does not preclude us making choices. And this man made a choice to walk down the road and he happens upon the Samaritan. 
He was probably coming from the temple. He's a priest. He's probably going to Jericho uh, because Jericho was a very popular haunt for priests at the time. It was a kind of a retreat. It was a nice place to hang out. Um, he was a holy man. So he didn't feel that he had time to be bothering with stuff like this. Beaten up, bloodied men lying by the side of the road. So you know what he did, this holy man? He passed by on the other side of the road. He didn't even stop to have a look. Now there's a Levite. Uh, all is not lost, we think, for this poor victim. Okay, the priest has been too holy, too busy to stop. But here's a Levite. So he's not a priest, but he serves in the temple precincts. Uh, so he's involved in religious stuff too. Surely he'll have some kind of compassion for this man. Um, he, it seems, at least stopped to have a look, but even he refused to stop and he passed by. Now, I am not sure why these men didn't stop. Maybe they were afraid. Dangerous road, man has just been beaten up, maybe this is a ploy. Um, a decoy, maybe if they stop they too will be jumped or set upon. Is this whole thing just staged? Both of them had probably been serving in the temple and were on their way home to Jerusalem. So maybe they were concerned about contact with the dead, which would have left them defiled according to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 21. Um, and they wouldn't have been able to carry out their priestly duties. But the indications are that they're going towards Jericho. Can't be dogmatic about that, but that's the indications. Maybe they just couldn't be bothered. Maybe they wanted to go home to their wives and families after a period of service. I mean, uh, they didn't do anyone any harm. Surely that was all that God expected them to do. The bottom line is that these holy men did not stop. Their religion was restricted to the temple. Their religion was a Sabbath, or let's bring it into the modern day world, their religion was a Sunday only thing. They had given their time to God. They couldn't be expected to give their time to some guy lying by the side of the road. At any rate, uh, there was no one to see their religious performance. There would be no glory in it for them. Their religion was heartless and empty. And they passed by this poor guy who had been beaten and left for dead. The world is full of this kind of hollow, empty religion. If ever there has been an accusation thrown at the church which sticks, it is surely this. We talk about the love of God, but we don't show much of it. Our talk does not match our walk. We're nice in church on Sunday, but woe betide anybody that crosses us between Sunday and the following Sunday, because they'll get it in the neck. And that's the story with this, with these two men. But what about the man that stopped? So Jesus tells about this other man. He comes down the road. He's a Samaritan. A Samaritan, someone who was despised by the Jews. Samaritans were folks that were left behind. Um, well, when the Assyrians overran Israel, they took people off captive and they brought pagans from other parts of the world and settled them in, in Israel. And so the Samaritans were this kind of mixed 
race of people. They had their own religion on Mount Gerizim. They built a temple, their own priest. Jews did not recognize the Samaritans. They hated them. There was a bitterness and a, 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 there was an animosity between these two people groups. Well, one of these no-gooders came down the road. Most Jews would have said to themselves, this Samaritan wouldn't help someone if he was paid money. Whatever chance he, the man who had been beaten up had, whatever chance he had with the priest and the Levite, he has no chance with a Samaritan. And I think they would never have expected Jesus to have used in his story the illustration of a Samaritan. I think they probably thought, oh, this will be some kind of anti-clerical story. You know, religious guys pass by and then some honest, upright farmer comes down the road, but he stops and helps. But Jesus doesn't use the story of an honest Jewish farmer. He uses a no-good, a no-gooder Samaritan. That's the hero of the story. This man dismounted when he saw the poor guy who had been beaten up. And uh, I think one of the older versions says, which I love just the way it's put, he went to where the man was. Just love that statement. He went to where the man was. When was the last time we ever went to where someone was in their brokenness and mess and sat with them and cared for them and ministered to them? This man stopped. He got off his donkey and he went to where this beaten up man was. The oil of the priests and the Levites remained in their bag. It had to be used for holy stuff, holy work in the temple. But this man used his oil to ease the wounds of the beaten man and to aid the healing process. The Samaritan lifted the victim onto his donkey. He even walks with him, slouched over his saddle until he reaches the nearest inn and he sacrifices at least a month's salary so that the man can be cared for and so that he can recuperate. Now, think about this. The Samaritan had no idea if he was helping a Jew or a fellow Samaritan because he's been stripped naked. So there's no clothes to identify him as one of his own. Doesn't know whether he's one of his own or whether he's someone completely different. He can't talk, so he can't tell from his accent or his language. This man's been beaten senseless. He's no idea who, is, who, he, who he is helping. All he knows is that here's a man who's been created in the image of God. He needs help, and I ought to stop and give it to him. That is loving your neighbor. Jesus' final question is, um, who was that man's neighbor? And of course, the answer is the man who showed him mercy. The man who showed him mercy. Well, the challenge of this is fairly simple, isn't it? We put our money in famine relief, a famine relief fund, and we think that we've done our bit. But Jesus wants us to go and to do. He wants us to go and find opportunities to, de to demonstrate the love of God. Ways in which we can ease the suffering of our fellow human beings. The word go here, as in go and do likewise, the word go here has the same kind of dynamic as the go in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Go and do likewise. 
Jesus expects us to go and find ways in which we can show the compassion and love and care that this man showed to the individual who was beaten up. Jesus expects us to live lives of love every minute of every day. He expects us to live out the Good Samaritan in every situation. I was hearing a story about a girl in uh, 1964, Kitty Genovey was her name. She was in her late 20s. She was stabbed to death outside her apartment in New York City and three separate killings that are attacks that lasted 35 minutes. According to police, no fewer than 38 people passed her and none of them helped her. Even the milkman went in and out of the apartment and never stopped. Nobody helped her. And when they were asked why nobody helped her, they said, well, we didn't want to get involved. We didn't want to get involved. Well, when Jesus said, go and do likewise, he meant get involved. Look for ways to demonstrate the love of God and the compassion of God. If we as the church actually lived this out, then I think we would begin to make an impact with the gospel in places like Moody'sburg or wherever we've come from, Duncan Street in Edinburgh. If we really lived this out, if we went looking for ways to minister and help people, I think we would begin to see an impact with the gospel that we would not expect. This is a true story that's happened on my watch. I had an associate pastor in the church that I served in Canada. He had been a missionary with AIM in Tanzania. Uh, he had planted a church with other AIM missionaries amongst the Digo people, 100% Muslim people group. He came back to Canada and he, he, he began, uh, he came on our staff team as an associate minister. A lady down at the bottom of the hill where our church was, at the bottom of the hill was going through cancer treatment and she was unable to fill in her census form. And one of the ladies in our church was following up on census forms with the government. She came up to the church and she says, I've just been at the door of someone who's going through cancer treatment. Her garden is a wilderness. And uh, I told them uh, that I would mention it to our church leaders and see if we could get them some help. So my associate pastor went down every week all summer, cut her hedge, cut her grass, tidied her garden one afternoon every week. She never even spoke to him. At the end of the summer, she came out with a glass of water and she gave it to Richard and she said, why do you want to help me? And as quick as a flash, he said to her, because God has helped me and I want to help you. And he said, if you allowed me I would love to open the Bible and show you how God has helped me. Would you be willing to do that, he said. So he sat with her uh, week in and week out and just read Mark's Gospel. Nothing other than that. Just read it, tried to explain Jesus as he went. And after umpteen weeks, I can't remember how many weeks it was, she gave her life to Christ. And she came to our church began and joined it began to serve in it and it all started with somebody just being a good Samaritan seeing looking for opportunities to demonstrate the love the love of God 
Well, let me just say this to you as I wind this up. Sorry if I've been so long. This kind of action reflects the grace and goodness of God. This kind of goodness and grace, the kind of goodness and grace that we see in the Good Samaritan, you know, it's just really a picture of the goodness and grace that we see in the prodigal father, in the story that we, for some reason, have called the prodigal son. It's really the prodigal God. He watches for his runaway son and runs to him when he sees him and embraces him. And this story is just a demonstration of the love and mercy of God. This gentleman who asked Jesus this question uh, was not just being given a, a moral directive. You know, he, he was being shown what it really means to love your neighbour. He was being shown how he did not live. He was being shown the kind of grace that God has shown to us. What he needs, this man who asked Jesus this question, is this kind of heart. And he doesn't have it. He's got a hard heart and a broken heart. And he needs a new heart. He needs to be born again from above. And he needs something of the life of God within him overflowing. Because if it did, he wouldn't be asking questions like, how broad is the statement, who is my neighbour? Every person that we come into contact with who is in need is our neighbour. Whoever they are, whatever their circumstances, they are our neighbour. And we ought to go and minister to them in the way that God has ministered to us. So this is not just a moral ditto. This is more than that. This is more than that. This is a man being shown something of the grace and goodness of God which he does not possess but which he desperately needs if he ever expects to get him um, to heaven. Well, let me pray um, before uh, I hand back to whoever. Lord, uh, thank you for this story in, in the scriptures. Uh, thank you for Good Samaritan who uh, reached out to this man in need. Help us, Lord, to think about it and as we go our separate ways uh, at the end of today, think about ways in which we can reach out to uh, the people that we live beside, work beside in their brokenness and in their misery and in their pain and in their need. Help us, Lord, to be willing to put ourselves out, uh, to use our own resources, and to demonstrate something of your love for people. Lord, we don't possess this heart by ourselves. It's the truth. Most of us feel like we wouldn't have time. We're too busy. We're passers-by. Help us, Lord, and work in our hearts Give us your compassion and your love so that we will always be the kind of people that will stop and do what we can to demonstrate your great love for us. Help us, we humbly pray, and we ask this in our Saviour's strong name.